Chapter Two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part One. Joan of Naples by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. As soon as the obsequies were over, Andre's tutor hastily assembled the chief Hungarian lords, and it was decided in a council held in the presence of the prince and with his consent to send letters to his mother, Elizabeth of Poland, and his brother, Louis of Hungary, to make known to them the purport of Robert's will, and at the same time to lodge a complaint at the court of Avignon against the conduct of the princes and people of Naples, in that they have proclaimed Joan alone Queen of Naples, thus overlooking the rights of her husband, and further to demand for him the Pope's order for Andre's coronation. Friar Robert, who had not only a profound knowledge of the court intrigues, but also the experience of a philosopher and all a monk's cunning, told his pupil that he ought to profit by the depression of spirit the king's death had produced in Joan, and ought not to suffer her favorites to use this time in influencing her by their seductive counsels. But Joan's ability to receive consolation was quite as ready as her grief had at first been impetuous. The sobs which seemed to be breaking her heart ceased all at once. New thoughts, more gentle, less lugubrious, took possession of the young queen's mind. The trace of tears vanished, and a smile lit up her liquid eyes like the sun's ray following on rain. This change, anxiously awaited, was soon observed by Joan's chamberwoman. She stole to the queen's room, and falling on her knees in accents of flattery and affection, she offered her first congratulations to her lovely mistress. Joan opened her arms and held her in a long embrace, for Donna Concha was far more to her than a lady-in-waiting. She was the companion of infancy, the depositary of all her secrets the confidant of her most private thoughts. One had but to glance at this young girl to understand the fascination she could scarcely fail to exercise over the queen's mind. She had a frank and smiling countenance, such as inspires confidence and captivates the mind at first sight. Her face had an irresistible charm, with clear blue eyes, warm golden hair, mouth bewitchingly turned up at the corners, and delicate little chin. Wild, happy, light of heart, pleasure and love were the breath of her being, her dainty refinement, her charming inconstancies, all made her at sixteen as lovely as an angel, though at heart she was corrupt. The whole court was at her feet, and Joan felt more affection for her than for her own sister. "'Well, my dear Concha,' she murmured with a sigh, "'you find me very sad and very unhappy.' "'And you find me, fair queen,' replied the confidant, fixing an admiring look on Joan. You find me just the opposite, very happy that I can lay at your feet before anyone else the proof of the joy that the people of Naples are at this moment feeling. Others perhaps may envy you the crown that shines upon your brow, the throne which is one of the noblest in the world, the shouts of this entire town that sound rather like worship than homage. But I, madame, I envy you your lovely black hair, your dazzling eyes, your more than mortal grace which makes every man adore you. And yet you know, my Concha, I am much to be pitied both as a queen and as a woman. When one is fifteen, a crown is heavy to wear, and I have not the liberty of the meanest of my subjects. I mean in my affections, for before I reached an age when I could think, I was sacrificed to a man whom I can never love. Yet, madame, replied Concha in a more insinuating voice, in this court there is a young cavalier who might, by virtue of respect, love and devotion have made you forget the claims of this foreigner alike unworthy to be our king and to be your husband the queen heaved a heavy sigh 
"'When did you lose your skill to read my heart?' she cried. "'Must I actually tell you that this love is making me wretched? "'True, at the very first this unsanctioned love was a keen joy. "'A new life seemed to wake within my heart. "'I was drawn on, fascinated by the prayers, the tears, and the despair of this man, "'by the opportunities that his mother so easily granted, "'she whom I had always looked upon as my own mother. "'I have loved him. "'Oh, my God! "'I am still so young, and my past is so unhappy.' At times, strange thoughts come into my mind. I fancy he no longer loves me, that he never did love me. I fancy that he has been led on by ambition, by self-interest, by some ignoble motive, and has only feigned a feeling that he has never really felt. I feel myself a coldness I cannot account for. In his presence, I am constrained. I am troubled by his look. His voice makes me tremble. I fear him. I would sacrifice a year of my life could I never have listened to him. These words seemed to touch the young confidant to the very depths of her soul. A shade of sadness crossed her brow. Her eyelids dropped, and for some time she answered nothing, showing sorrow rather than surprise. Then, lifting her head gently, she said with visible embarrassment, "'I should never have dared to pass so severe a judgment upon a man whom my sovereign lady has raised above other men by casting upon him a look of kindness. But if Robert of Cabane has deserved the reproach of inconstancy and ingratitude, if he has perjured himself like a coward, he must indeed be the basest of all miserable beings, despising a happiness which other men might have entreated of God the whole time of their life and paid for through eternity. One man I know who weeps both night and day, without hope or consolation, consumed by a slow and painful malady, when one word might yet avail to save him, did it come from the lips of my noble mistress. I would not hear another word cried Joan, suddenly rising. "'There shall be no new cause for remorse in my life. Trouble has come upon me through my loves, both lawful and criminal. Alas, no longer will I try to control my awful fate. I will bow my head without a murmur. I am the queen, and I must yield myself up for the good of my subjects.' "'Will you forbid me, madame?' replied Donna Concha, in a kind, affectionate tone. "'Will you forbid me to name Bertrand of Artois in your presence? "'That unhappy man with the beauty of an angel and the modesty of a girl? "'Now that you are queen and have the life and death of your subjects in your own keeping, "'will you feel no kindness towards an unfortunate one whose only fault is to adore you, "'who strives with all his mind and strength to bear a chance look of yours without dying of his joy?' "'I have struggled hard never to look on him.' cried the queen, urged by an impulse she was not strong enough to conquer. Then, to efface the impression that might well have been made on her friend's mind, she added severely, "'I forbid you to pronounce his name before me, and if he should ever venture to complain, I bid you tell him from me that the first time I even suspect the cause of his distress, he will be banished forever from my presence.' "'Ah, madame, dismiss me also, for I shall never be strong enough to do so hard a bidding.' The unhappy man who cannot awaken your heart so much as a feeling of pity may now be struck down by yourself in your wrath. For here he stands, he has heard your sentence, and come to die at your feet. The last words were spoken in a louder voice, so that they might be heard from outside, and Bertrand de Artois came hurriedly into the room and fell on his knees before the queen. For a long time past the young lady-in-waiting had perceived that Robert of Cabane had, through his own fault, lost the love of Joan, 
for his tyranny had indeed become more unendurable to her than her husband's. Dona Cancha had been quick enough to perceive that the eyes of her young mistress were wont to rest with a kind of melancholy gentleness on Bertrand, and a young man of handsome appearance but with a sad and dreamy expression. So when she made up her mind to speak in his interests, she was persuaded that the queen already loved him. Still, a bright color overspread Joan's face, and her anger would have fallen on both culprits alike, when in the next room a sound of steps was heard, and the voice of the grand seneschal's widow in conversation with her son fell on the ears of the three young people like a clap of thunder. Dona Cancha, pale as death, stood trembling. Bertrand felt that he was lost, all the more because his presence compromised the queen. Joan only, with that wonderful presence of mind she was destined to preserve in the most difficult crises of her future life, thrust the young man against the carved back of her bed, and concealed him completely beneath the ample curtain. She then signed to Cancha to go forward and meet the governess and her son. But before we conduct into the queen's room these two persons, whom our readers may remember in Joan's train about the bed of King Robert, we must relate the circumstances which had caused the family of the Catanese to rise with incredible rapidity from the lowest class of the people to the highest rank at court. When Donna Violante of Aragon, first wife of Robert of Anjou, became the mother of Charles, who was later on the Duke of Calabria, a nurse was sought for the infant among the most handsome women of the people. After inspecting many women of equal merit as regards beauty, youth, and health, the prince's choice alighted on Philippa, a young Catanese woman, the wife of a fisherman of Trapani, and by condition a laundress. This young woman, as she washed her linen on the bank of a stream, had dreamed strange dreams. She had fancied herself summoned to court, wedded to a great personage, and receiving the honors of a great lady. Thus, when she was called to Castel Nuovo, her joy was great, for she felt that her dreams now began to be realized. Philippa was installed at the court, and a few months after she began to nurse the child, the fisherman was dead, and she was a widow. Meanwhile, Raymond of Cabane, the major-domo of King Charles II's house, had bought a negro from some corsairs, and having had him baptized by his own name, had given him his liberty. Afterwards observing that he was able and intelligent, he had appointed him head cook in the king's kitchen, and then he had gone away to the war. During the absence of his patron, the negro managed his own affairs at the court so cleverly that in a short time he was able to buy land, houses, farms, silver plate, and horses, and could vie in riches with the best in the kingdom. And as he constantly won higher favor in the royal family, he passed on from the kitchen to the wardrobe. The Catanese had also deserved very well of her employers, and as a reward for the care she had bestowed on the child, the princess married her to the negro, and he, as a wedding gift, was granted the title of knight. From this day forward, Raymond of Cabane and Philippa the laundress rose in the world so rapidly that they had no equal in influence at court. After the death of Donna Violante, the Catanese became the intimate friend of Donna Sandra, Robert's second wife, whom we introduced to our readers at the beginning of this narrative. Charles, her foster son, loved her as a mother, and she was the confidant of his two wives in turn, especially of the second wife, Maria Valois. And as the quondam laundress and had in the end learned all the manners and customs of the court, she was chosen at the birth of Joan and her sister to be governess and mistress over the young girls, and at this juncture Raymond was created major-domo. Finally, Maria Valois on her deathbed commended the two young princesses to her care, begging her to look on them as her own daughters. 
Thus, Philippa the Catanese, honored in future as foster mother of the heiress to the throne of Naples, had power to nominate her husband Grand Seneschal, one of the seven most important offices in the kingdom, and to obtain knighthood for her sons. Raymond of Cabane was buried like a king in a marble tomb in the Church of the Holy Sacrament, and there was speedily joined by two of his sons. The third, Robert, a youth of extraordinary strength and beauty, gave up an ecclesiastical career and was himself made major-domo, his two sisters being married to the Count of Melizzi and the Count of Marconi, respectively. This was now the state of affairs, and the influence of the Grand Seneschal's widow seemed forever established when an unexpected event suddenly occurred, causing such injury as might well suffice to upset the edifice of her fortunes that had been raised stone by stone patiently and slowly. This edifice was now undermined and threatened to fall in a single day. It was the sudden apparition of Friar Robert, who followed to the court of Rome his young pupil, who from infancy had been Joan's destined husband, which thus shattered all the designs of the Catanese and seriously menaced her future. The monk had not been slow to understand that so long as she remained at the court, André would be no more than the slave, possibly even the victim of his wife. Thus all Friar Robert's thoughts were obstinately concentrated on a single end, that of getting rid of the Catanese or neutralizing her influence. The prince's tutor and the governess of the heiress had but to exchange one glance, icy, penetrating, plain to read. Their looks met like lightning flashes of hatred and of vengeance. The Catanese, who felt she was detected, lacked courage to fight this man in the open, and so conceived the hope of strengthening her tottering empire by the arts of corruption and debauchery. She instilled by degrees into her pupil's mind the poison of vice, inflamed her youthful imagination with precocious desires, sowed in her heart the seeds of an inconquerable aversion for her husband, surrounded the poor child with abandoned women, and especially attached to her the beautiful and attractive Donna Cancha, who was branded by contemporary authors with the name of a courtesan, then summed up all these lessons in infamy by prostituting Joan to her own son. The poor girl, polluted by sin before she knew what life was, threw her whole self into this first passion with all the ardor of youth, and loved Robert of Cabane so violently, so madly, that the Catanese congratulated herself on the success of her infamy, believing that she held her prey so fast in her toils that her victim would never attempt to escape them. A year passed by before Joan, conquered by her infatuation, conceived the smallest suspicion of her lover's sincerity. He, more ambitious than affectionate, found it easy to conceal his coldness under the cloak of a brotherly intimacy, of blind submission, and of unswerving devotion. Perhaps he would have deceived his mistress for a longer time had not Bertrand of Artois fallen madly in love with Joan. Suddenly the bandage fell from the young girl's eyes, comparing the two with natural instinct of a woman beloved, which never goes astray. She perceived that Robert of Cabane loved her for his own sake, while Bertrand of Artois would give his life to make her happy. A light fell upon her past. She mentally recalled the circumstances that preceded and accompanied her earliest love, and a shudder went through her at the thought that she had been sacrificed to a cowardly seducer by the very woman she had loved most in the world, whom she had called by the name of mother. Joan drew back into herself and wept bitterly. Wounded by a single blow in all her affections, at first her grief absorbed her. Then, roused to sudden anger, she proudly raised her head, for now her love was changed to scorn. Robert, amazed at her cold and haughty reception of him, following on so great a love, was stung by jealousy and wounded pride. He broke out into bitter reproach and violent recrimination, and letting fall the mask, 
once for all lost his place in Joan's heart. His mother at last saw that it was time to interfere. She rebuked her son, accusing him of upsetting all her plans by his clumsiness. "'As you have failed to conquer her by love,' she said, "'you must now subdue her by fear. The secret of her honour is in our hands. She will never dare to rebel. She plainly loves Bertrand of Artois, whose languishing eyes and humble sighs contrast in a striking manner with your haughty indifference and your masterful ways.' the mother of the princes of tarentum the empress of constantinople will easily seize an occasion of helping on the prince's love so as to alienate her more and more from her husband concha will be the go-between and sooner or later we shall find bertrand at joan's feet then she will be able to refuse us nothing while all this was going on the old king died and the catanese who had unceasingly kept on the watch for the moment she had so plainly foreseen loudly called to her son when she saw bertrand slip into joan's apartment saying as she drew him after her follow me the queen is ours it was thus that she and her son came to be there joan standing in the middle of the chamber pallid her eyes fixed on the curtains of the bed concealed her agitation with a smile and took one step forward towards her governess stooping to receive the kiss which the latter bestowed upon her every morning the Catanese embraced her with affected cordiality, and, turning to her son, who had knelt upon one knee, said, pointing to Robert, "'My fair queen, allow the humblest of your subjects to offer his sincere congratulations, and to lay his homage at your feet.' "'Rise, Robert,' said Joan, extending her hand kindly, and with no show of bitterness. "'We were brought up together. I shall never forget that in our childhood.' I mean those happy days when we were both innocent. I called you my brother. As you allow me, madame, said Robert with an ironical smile, I too shall always remember the names you formerly gave me. And I, said the Catanese, shall forget that I speak to the Queen of Naples in embracing once more my beloved daughter. Come, madame, away with care. You have wept long enough. We have long respected your grief. It is now time to show yourself to these good Neapolitans, who bless heaven continually for granting them a queen so beautiful and good. It is time that your favors fall upon the heads of your faithful subjects, and my son, who surpasses all in his fidelity, comes first to ask a favor of you, in order that he may serve you yet more zealously. Joan cast on Robert a withering look, and speaking to the Catanese, said with a scornful air, you know, madame, I can refuse your son nothing. All he asks, continued the lady, is a title which is his due, and which he inherited from his father, the title of Grand Seneschal of the Two Sicilies. I trust, my daughter, you will have no difficulty in granting this. But I must consult the Council of Regency. The Council will hasten to ratify the Queen's wishes replied robert handing her the parchment with an imperious gesture you need only speak to the count of artois and he cast a threatening glance at the curtain which had slightly moved you are right said the queen at once and going up to a table she signed the parchment with a trembling hand now my daughter i have come in the name of all the care i bestowed on your infancy of all the maternal love i have lavished on you to implore a favour that my family will remember for evermore. 
The queen recoiled one step, crimson with astonishment and rage. But before she could find words to reply, the lady continued in a voice that betrayed no feeling. "'I request you to make my son Count of Eboli.' "'That has nothing to do with me, madame. The barons of this kingdom would revolt to a man if I were on my own authority to exalt to one of the first dignitaries the son of a—a a laundress and a negro, you would say, madame,' said Robert with his sneer. Bertrand of Artois would be annoyed, perhaps, if I had a title like his. He advanced a step towards the bed, his hand upon the hilt of his sword. "'Have mercy, Robert,' cried the queen, checking him. "'I will do all you ask.' And she signed the parchment, naming him Count of Eboli. "'And now,' Robert went on impudently, "'to show that my new title is not illusory, uh, while you are busy about signing documents, let me have the privilege of taking part in the councils of the crown. Make a declaration that, subject to your good pleasure, my mother and I are to have a deliberative voice in the council whenever an important matter is under discussion. Never! cried Joan, turning pale. Philippa and Robert, you abuse my weakness and treat your queen shamefully. In the last few days I have wept and suffered continually, overcome by a terrible grief— I have no strength to turn to business now. Leave me, I beg. I feel my strength gives way. What, my daughter? cried the Catanese hypocritically. Are you feeling unwell? Come and lie down at once. And hurrying to the bed, she took hold of the curtain that concealed the Count of Artois. The queen uttered a piercing cry and threw herself before Filippo with the fury of a lioness. Stop, she cried in a choking voice. "'Take the privilege you ask, and now, if you value your own life, leave me.' The Catanese and her son departed instantly, not even waiting for a reply, for they had got all they wanted, while Joan, trembling, ran desperately up to Bertrand, who had angrily drawn his dagger and would have fallen upon the two favorites to take vengeance for the insults they had offered to the queen. But he was very soon disarmed by the lovely shining eyes raised to him in supplication, the two arms cast about him and the tears shed by Joan. He fell at her feet and kissed them rapturously, with no thought of seeking excuse for his presence, with no word of love, for it was as if they had always loved. He lavished the tenderest caresses on her, dried her tears, and pressed his trembling lips upon her lovely head. Joan began to forget her anger, her vows, and her repentance. Soothed by the music of her lover's speech, she returned uncomprehending monosyllables. Her heart beat till it felt like breaking and once more she was falling beneath love's resistless spell, when a new interruption occurred, shaking her roughly out of her ecstasy. But this time the young count was able to pass quietly and calmly into a room adjoining, and Joan prepared to receive her importunate visitor with severe and frigid dignity. The individual who arrived at so inopportune a moment was a little calculated to smooth Joan's ruffled brow, being Charles, the eldest son of the Durazzo family. After he had introduced his fair cousin to the people as their only legitimate sovereign, he had sought on various occasions to obtain an interview with her, which in all probability would be decisive. Charles was one of those men who, to gain their end, recoil at nothing. Devoured by raging ambition and accustomed from his earliest years to conceal his most ardent desires beneath a mask of careless indifference, he marched ever onward, plot succeeding plot, toward the object he was bent upon securing, and never deviated one hair's breadth from the path he had marked out, 
but only acted with a double prudence after each victory and with double courage after each defeat. His cheek grew pale with joy. When he hated most, he smiled. In all the emotions of his life, however strong, he was inscrutable. He had sworn to sit on the throne of Naples, and long had believed himself the rightful heir, as being nearest of kin to Robert of all his nephews. To him the hand of Joan would have been given had not the old king in his latter days conceived the plan of bringing André from Hungary and re-establishing the elder branch in his person, though that had long since been forgotten. But his resolution had never for a moment been weakened by the arrival of André in the kingdom, or by the profound indifference wherewith Joan, preoccupied with other passion, had always received the advances of her cousin Charles of Durazzo. Neither the love of a woman nor the life of a man was of any account to him when a crown was weighed in the other scale of the balance. During the whole time that the queen had remained invisible, Charles had hung about her apartments, and now came into her presence with respectful eagerness, to inquire for his cousin's health. The young duke had been at pains to set off his noble features and elegant figure by a magnificent dress, covered with golden fleur-de-lis and glittering with precious stones. His doublet of scarlet velvet and cap of the same showed up by their own splendor, the warm coloring of his skin, while his face seemed illumined by his black eyes that shone keen as an eagle's. Charles spoke long with his cousin of the people's enthusiasm on her accession, and of the brilliant destiny before her. He drew a hasty but truthful sketch of the state of the kingdom, and while he lavished praises on the queen's wisdom, he cleverly pointed out what reforms were most urgently needed by the country. He contrived to put so much warmth, yet so much reserve, into his speech that he destroyed the disagreeable impression his arrival had produced. In spite of the irregularities of her youth and the depravity brought about by her wretched education, Joan's nature impelled her to noble action. When the welfare of her subjects was concerned, she rose above the limitations of her age and sex, and, forgetting her strange position, listened to the Duke of Durazzo with the liveliest interest and the kindliest attention. He then hazarded allusions to the dangers that beset a young queen, spoke vaguely of the difficulty in distinguishing between true devotion and cowardly complacence or interested attachment. He spoke of the ingratitude of many who had been loaded with benefits, and had been most completely trusted. Joan, who had just learned the truth of his words by sad experience, replied with a sigh, and after a moment's silence added, May God, whom I call to witness for the loyalty and uprightness of my intentions, may God unmask all traitors and show me my true friends. I know that the burden laid upon me is heavy, and I presume not on my strength, but I trust that the tried experience of those counsellors to whom my uncle entrusted me, the support of my family, and your warm and sincere friendship above all, my dear cousin, will help me to accomplish my duty. My sincerest prayer is that you may succeed, my fair cousin, and I will not darken with doubts and fears a time that ought to be given up to joy. I will not mingle with the shouts of gladness that rise on all sides to proclaim you queen, any vain regrets over that blind fortune which has placed beside the woman whom we all alike adore, whose single glance would make a man more blessed than the angels, a foreigner unworthy of your love and unworthy of your throne. You forget, Charles said the queen, putting out her hand as though to check his words. "'André is my husband, and it was my grandfather's will that he should reign with me.' "'Never!' cried the duke indignantly. "'The king of Naples! Nay, dream that the town is shaken to its very foundations, that the people rise as one man, that our church bells sound a new Sicilian vespers, before the people of Naples will endure the rule of a handful of wild Hungarian drunkards, a deformed, canting monk!' 
a prince detested by them even as you are beloved but why is andre blamed what has he done what has he done why why is he blamed madame the people blame him as stupid coarse a savage the nobles blame him for ignoring their privileges and openly supporting men of obscure birth and i madame here he lowered his voice blame him for making you unhappy joan shuddered as though a wound had been touched by an unkind hand but hiding her emotion beneath an appearance of calm she replied in a voice of perfect indifference you must be dreaming charles who has given you leave to suppose i am unhappy do not try to excuse him my dear cousin replied charles eagerly you will injure yourself without saving him the queen looked fixedly at her cousin as though she would read him through and through and find out the meaning of his words but as she could not give credence to the horrible thought that crossed her mind she assumed a complete confidence in her cousin's friendship with a view to discovering his plans and said carelessly well charles suppose i am not happy what remedy could you offer me that i might escape my lot you ask me that my dear cousin are not all remedies good when you suffer and when you wish for revenge one must fly to those means that are possible andre will not readily give up his pretensions he has a party of his own and in case of open rupture his brother the king of hungary may declare war upon us and bring ruin and desolation upon our kingdom the duke of duras faintly smiled and his countenance assumed a sinister expression you do not understand me he said then explain without circumlocution said the queen trying to conceal the convulsive shudder that ran through her limbs listen joan said charles taking his cousin's hand and laying it upon his heart can you feel that dagger i can said joan and she turned pale one word from you and yes to-morrow you will be free a murder cried joan recoiling in horror then i was not deceived it is a murder that you have proposed it is a necessity said the duke calmly to-day i advise later on you will give your orders enough wretch i cannot tell if you are more cowardly or more rash cowardly because you reveal a criminal plot feeling sure that i shall never denounce you rash because in revealing it to me you cannot tell what witnesses are near to hear it all in any case madame since i have put myself in your hands you must perceive that i cannot leave you till i know if i must look upon myself as your friend or as your enemy leave me cried joan with a disdainful gesture you insult your queen you forget my dear cousin that some day i may very likely have a claim to your kingdom do not force me to have you turned out of this room said joan advancing toward the door now do not get excited my fair cousin i am going but at least remember that i offered you my hand and you refused it remember what i say at this solemn moment to-day i am the guilty man some day perhaps i may be the judge he went away slowly twice turning his head repeating in the language of his signs his menacing prophecy joan hid her face in her hands and for a long time remained plunged in dismal reflections then anger got the better of all her other feelings and she summoned donna cancha bidding her not to allow anybody to enter on any pretext whatsoever 
This prohibition was not for the Count of Artois, for the reader will remember that he was in the adjoining room. End of chapter 2 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia